Good morning. Can we, um, how many of you are pretty warm already? All right. Rick, if you don't mind, um, I'll, I'll speak loud enough to counteract any noise coming from that door, but if you don't mind just opening that up, it'll keep, <coughs> keep, keep me awake anyway. All right. Um, does anybody need a copy of the outline? Okay, there's a couple of people that need a copy. Okay, just put your hand up and uh, we'll get one for you. Try to make it a little bit bigger for you this week. Hang on a second here. Okay, we are in a study of the uh, book of Acts, and um, we have arrived at chapter 6. And um, just so that for, for some of you who have not been here, we're just breaking down, doing an overview of the, um, the book of Acts, and we're looking at just an overview, just a, a real um, superficial outline of the book, and then we're going to, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead and months ahead, do a verse-by-verse study of the, of the book of Acts and um, other books. We've divided the book into three major sections. The first section has to do with Jesus said that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we've divided the book of Acts up very neatly into three sections. The gospel as it goes out into Jerusalem, the gospel as it goes out into Judea and Samaria, and then the gospel as it goes out into the uttermost parts of the earth or to the end of the earth. And so we're still working our way through the first section as the gospel is primarily preached in Jerusalem to the Jews. And um, that section of time takes us about three years. So we have come to a point where the gospel has gone out. People have been saved. As we've noticed in the uh, book of Acts, there's a lot of math in it where people are added to the church and the church multiplies. And so we're seeing this tremendous num- number of people coming to know the Lord, and uh, they're getting saved, and, and there's trouble. Trouble comes with it. When you have people, you bring, the people bring trouble with them. And part of the thing that you'll see in the book of Acts is difficulties that are handled in the correct way result in the church multiplying, the church growing. So we've, we come to another problem uh, today, and it's chapter 6. And we'll just read a couple of verses here. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 6. And 
And we'll begin reading about the trouble in verse 1. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there you have that math again, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So let's take a look, or just think about this for a second. The church has grown. And as the gospel has gone out into the, the city of Jerusalem, both Jews who speak the Hebrew language and the Hellenist Jews who are Greek-speaking Jews, have come. They, both groups have become believers. And as we've read earlier in the book of Acts, we saw thousands of people come to know the Lord um, from really every walk of life. And they're gathering together for the first time in this first three-year period and many of them are congregating in Jerusalem. And as, they, as the church grows, the needs become greater and greater. There are people who have land and houses and things, and there are people who are poor, and they don't have these things. And the early Christians shared the things that they had. Some, it says, sold houses and land and began to distribute to those who didn't have anything uh, such as they had need. And so we see this distribution going on, and we see people who are just getting their daily necessities, such as food on the table, clothes on their back. And that's the, that's the scene that we have here in the book of Acts. And we have the, the church trying to reach out and meet the needs of the community, of believers. And so we have the, the Hellenist Jews, these are the Greek-speaking Jews, who are saying, hey, wait a minute. Our widows, you're trying to take care of the elderly people who can't work, and, and you're trying to take care of our widows, but our widows aren't being taken care of in the same way as the Hebrew-speaking Jews are, the, the Hebrew-speaking Christians. This isn't fair. Uh-oh. So now we have church trouble again. So we've got another trial, and we have a godly solution to the trial. What we have here is contention. We have here is dissension. We have division in the church. And it's not coming from outside. It's coming from within. And without a solution, this problem would spread like cancer through the entire church, and the church would have ended in the first three years. It would not have survived. But the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Satan is very clever. He not only tries to divide the church and conquer the church from without, persecution from without, but he also tries to do it from within. And that is what is taking place here in Acts chapter 6. Now, it's important for us to realize that it wasn't, uh, this was not the only case of this in church history, by the way. This is one case in point, and they handled it correctly. But the Apostle Paul, later in history, writes to several churches. And one of the things that he writes repeatedly is, churches, be of the same mind be of one mind or of one accord and so in in uh, romans chapter 12 paul writes to the romans and he says this be of the same mind toward one another in second corinthians 13 he says be of one mind to the philippians another church he writes fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love being of one accord of one mind Peter takes up the challenge, and he writes the same thing in 1 Peter. He says, 
uh, all of you be of one mind. And then we also read in the scripture, let there be no divisions among you. Why is this so important? Because if we are not of one mind and one purpose and one direction, it will split the church. It will destroy the church. And so it is important for us, not only as a church corporately to be of the same mind, but individually, we must also be of one mind um, if we are going to see the Lord's blessing on our, in our midst. Well, the apostles recognized the problem and uh, they dealt with it. They didn't ignore it. They didn't bury their head in the sand. They dealt with the problem. And this is what they did. They suggested a plan to solve the problem. And the solution is found in this chapter. I'll wait till the noise stops. I can speak over most noise. That's one I won't try. All right. So the apostles plan um, to solve the problem here by doing this. They say in chapter 6, in verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, what they suggested here was for the, the brethren of the, of the assembly, of this great group of Christians, to look inwardly at, at the group and say, okay, who here is qualified to serve tables? Qualified to serve tables. Wow. Okay, who's qualified to help out in the distribution of the, of the necessities of, of the, um, the widows and, and all of the rest of the practical things that go on in a church body? And so they were to select this group. And we read later in this chapter that they were to serve tables. The word serve there actually means deacon the tables. This is really the first time we come across this group of people in a church. It's deaconing uh, the tables, serving the tables. And that's what a deacon means. It's someone who devotes themselves to the service of the body of believers. And um, they're recognized as such. Really, it is a group of men who are willing to put the needs of the saints or the needs of the assembly ahead of their own needs and their own, um, and their own business. This was their job. In fact, their job was to know the needs within the assembly and to meet those needs without even having to be asked to, to do it. They just saw the needs and they ministered to the uh, care and the needs of the body. Well, in this chapter, as a result of what took place, them recognizing seven deacons, seven men full of the Holy Spirit and so on, um, they, they began to serve in the church. And then we have math coming back into the, the book of Acts again. When the problem is resolved, in verse 7 it says, The word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we have them multiplying once again. Now, the church chose seven deacons. One of the deacons that they chose was a man named Stephen. Stephen was a very capable deacon. He was not only gifted in the ability to serve, but he was also a capable uh, teacher. And uh, it says in uh, chapter 6, verse, um, verse 9, 
that there were some men who were disputing with Stephen. And they, they, they saw this, they seized this dispute as an opportunity to try to persecute the church, and in particular persecute Stephen. They made false accusations against him. They began to tell uh, others that he was um, trying to dismantle the Bible and, and, and uh, speak against Moses and all of this sort of thing. And so there was a dispute that arose as a result of his teaching. And so he was brought um, in, before the council, and that's the story that we come to in chapter 7. Stephen is brought before the council, and ultimately, um, as we read through the chapter, we see that he is the first martyr of the church. Well, in this chapter, it actually goes from chapter 7. We don't see it on this sheet here, but if I were to pull it this way a little bit, you would see that, that this event takes place from all the way through chapter 7 and the first four verses of chapter 8. So if you're doing an outline, that's, that's where it is. So this goes all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Stephen defends his position that he, in fact, does believe the Old Testament Scripture, that he respects Moses and all that he did. And so he recounts to these people, kind of giving them a history of their own nation and their own people. He, he recounts for them the story of Israel's beginning all the way through its history. But he does something very interesting as he tells the story. He is saying to the Jews that are listening, listen, all the way through your history, you have rejected God's prophets. God has sent prophets to you to bring you back to himself and you continuously reject him and you reject the servants or the prophets that he sends to you. And you're doing the same thing today as I'm preaching the gospel to you, he says. I am presenting to you Jesus Christ and him crucified and you're rejecting that gospel message. You're just like your fathers. You're as hard-hearted as they are. Well, that didn't go over too well, needless to say. And so rather than listening and saying, you know what, what he's saying is true. What he's saying is real. We are just like our fathers. We are persecuting um, and we are responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Instead of that, they hardened their hearts and they picked up stones to stone him. You know, it is interesting that in this chapter, we read that as he uh, speaks to them, let's just take a look at verse 51 in chapter 7. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that is, Jesus Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so he takes the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and he lays the blame right at their feet. He says, you are guilty, you are responsible for taking the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and crucifying him. Um, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, and we would not know this had the Lord not told us. When they heard these things, it says, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. So we see something taking place internally here that we would not know otherwise. And it is that when a person 
is convicted of their sin. The Holy Spirit of God is convicting them of their own sin. And they're rejecting it. They're, it says they're cut to their heart. It means that they realize very clearly that they were, in fact, guilty of, the, uh, of crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were convicted of it. But rather than repent of it, they became enraged and they took it out on the messenger and picked up stones and stoned him to death. Let me say this to you this morning. If the Lord convicts you of sin, if the Lord speaks to you about sin in your own life, repent of it. That's what he wants. He wants us not to just, he's not just trying to expose sin in our lives. He does that, but there's a purpose behind it. The reason that he exposes sin in our life is that we might be, we might repent of our sin and that we might be brought back into a right relationship with God. That's what he's looking for. And so if he convicts you of your faults or your wrongs or your sins, be careful that you don't act like these religious people here in chapter six and seven who killed the prophet of God for telling them the truth about their sin. There's one proper response, and this is what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And as I think about Stephen preaching here, his, his purpose in preaching was not just to make them feel bad about themselves. His purpose in preaching to them was to expose their sin so that they might come and, and uh, enjoy the mercy of God. God, he's really saying here, look, God is merciful. He wants to treat you in a kind way. He wants to give you favor. And if you will repent of your sin, he will do that to you. He will do that for you. Repent and he will have mercy upon you and uh, repent to our God for he will abundantly pardon I don't really have this figured out yet. But I often think about why is it so hard for us to repent? Why is it so hard for us to uh, take sides with God against ourselves? But we do. God exposes our sin and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God exposed the sin of Adam and Eve. And the first thing that Adam did was he blamed God and he blamed Eve. He says, the, the, he blamed the woman first. The woman... You gave me, blaming God and, and blaming the woman. And we do that. We, rather than take, fess up and take responsibility for our own sins and acknowledge them and confess them before God, we often point the finger at other people. You know, David, in Psalm 32, finally, after about a year, took sides with God against himself. And this is what he said. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my vitality was turned into the drought of summer this is the condition of someone who is living or is in sin and has not repented of their sin that's the condition it's like everything internally is just drying up and shriveling up and that's what david said it's like my bones are just decaying and, and my body my inter internal being is just like facing the drought of summer but this is what he says i acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity i have not hidden i said i will confess my transgressions to the lord and this is the wonderful news that he tells us and you forgave the iniquity of my sin that's what god wants to do he wants to forgive our sins 
But the Jews didn't want to hear that message. And so they picked up stone and they stoned the messenger. Now, in this chapter, uh, we also come across a new character. And that is uh, verse 58. And it says, they ca- this is talking about how they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is the first occasion that we come across uh, Saul, who later becomes Paul uh, the Apostle. But here he is at the death of, of Stephen, consenting to his death and taking care of the clothing of the people who are uh, stoning him to death. Saul ultimately became the point man for the persecution of the church. Uh, and uh, he was known um, to enter into the, house, the houses of Christians and drag them off to prison and persecute them. Now, for this section, we also move all the way into chapter 8, uh, 1 through 3. Actually, I'm sorry, I said earlier 1 through 4. It's actually 1 through 3. Um, it says in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death, and then it talks about how he um, made havoc of the church in verse 3, entering every home and dragging men and women and committing them to prison. So we really have the end of the story. Now, I want to say something to you very carefully, and I want you to hear it carefully. Jesus, um, well, I'll get to what he said in a minute. As we do this outline, I'm putting the first three verses into this section because it fits better. And um, it fits better with the the events of chapter 7. Now, I want to stop here and, and point out something, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Okay, do you believe that? Amen. Okay, good. It's inspired. It is God's word right down to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. The Bible even tells us that the tenses of a verb are inspired. Paul uses it as an argument later in, uh, in the New Testament. The Bible is in the inspired word of God from beginning to end completely, without exception, right down to the last detail. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, in the Hebrew um, uh, script, there are little markings, just like our dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Right down to that level, it is the inspired word of God, and it will come to pass. Now, having said that, it is important for us to also realize that the numbers in our Bibles are not inspired. And what I mean by that, um, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, those numbers are not inspired. Those were put in the Bible for us to be able to find the place that we were talking about. Okay. So when you end with a chapter, and it's important for you to know this as you study the Bible, because when you get to the end of a chapter, often in our minds we say, okay, stop, new thought. And sometimes it isn't a new thought. In fact, sometimes the chapter breaks are really quite awkward. And and if we didn't have them, the flow of the text would actually be better. So it's really there for, the the numbers are there for our convenience. They're not inspired. The original text didn't have numbers. They were later put in for us to be able to find them so that I can say to you, turn to John chapter 3, 16, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, if I said, you know, about page, you know, roughly 75 or 76 in your Bibles, you'll find this verse. It'd be a little harder for us to find them, okay? So that's not inspired, but everything else, all the word, 
of the Lord is. Okay? Now, we've come to a transition in the book of Acts, and we now move into the second phase, if you will, or the second stage of the, um, the book. The Great Commission is what I read at the very beginning. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, go uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. We're now moving into the Judea and Samaria portion of the uh, preaching of the gospel. Now, chapter 8, beginning with verse 4, we have the the, um, event of a man named Philip who goes to Samaria and he preaches the gospel in Samaria. So I'm going to give you a couple of things to look at as we go. Sometimes we use names, Bible names and things like that. And if we don't have a map in front of us, it's a little harder sometimes to just figure out what we're talking about. Some of you have maps at the back of your Bible and you're more than welcome to follow along with that, but I'll put this up for you. So the uh, early church began in Jerusalem. And uh, most of the gospel was preached there to begin with. And the Lord sent persecution. When did persecution take place? At the stoning of Stephen. When that took place, there was a mass exodus from Jerusalem. And people, Christians, began to go to other cities and to other countries. But they also took with them the gospel message. And so as they went out, one of them was Philip, and he went to Samaria, and he brought the gospel to Samaria. News traveled back to Jerusalem, and they heard that the Samaritans were coming to know the Lord. They heard that people were getting saved in Samaria. And so they sent Peter and John to them to see if these things were true, and they found that indeed the Samaritans had also received the Holy Spirit, and they were in fact believers. When this was taking place, um, so up in this region up here, uh, Philip is preaching the gospel and the disciples have found out that there are believers up there now and the Lord commissions Philip and he says, you know what, there's a chariot on its way down to Ethiopia and I want you to go down to the chariot, meet it and uh, there's somebody on board that I want you to talk to. Okay, Lord, boom, off he goes. That's quite a distance. You see the distance on the map there? This is the um, the... The eunuch uh, was in Jerusalem, and he's going down to Ethiopia. And as he's going, he's getting closer and closer to the Mediterranean Sea as he's going down that trade route to um, Ethiopia. And so he catches up with this, um, this man. And uh, climbed on board, and he said, uh, what are you reading? And he said, well, I'm reading Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, as you well know, talks about the sufferings of the Messiah. And he says, who is, who is the writer talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about another? And Philip was able to take that transition. It was a pretty good uh, opening for the gospel, wouldn't you say? And he said, well, let me tell you who this is talking about. And he told him about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he had suffered and died for this Ethiopian and how he had, if he believed the gospel, he could be saved. And so the man said, this is wonderful news. 
And he said, uh, hey, look, there's water. I can be baptized, can't I? So he was saved and he was baptized immediately. That's the way the early church did it, actually. Okay? They didn't wait for uh, an opening at Fairhaven on a Sunday. <laughs> but that's what he did. He got right down into the water and he was baptized right there and then. And off he went back to his home. And this is how the gospel first came to the country of Ethiopia. And I believe it's how the gospel first came to the continent of Africa. We have two with us this morning who are from the country of Ethiopia. And it's ultimately the gospel that went out first there. And um, one of the earliest places that the gospel went to. And so Philip got off uh, out of the water and all of a sudden he was, he just vanished. And he appeared in a place called uh, Azotus or uh, some others um, say Ashdod. Really, it's, it's up here. So he's coming down this way and all of a sudden he appears up here. Um, in this area here, and he begins to preach the gospel in the, there. And then also, I'll pull this down a little bit. So he's preaching all up through this coast, Azotus, all the way up to uh, Caesarea. And that's the ministry that he has at that time. Now, let's go to chapter 9. Um, if you have your outline, it's chapter, well, let me let me put it back up. I'm going to give you a couple of spots here. Chapter 9, uh, we're looking at Saul again. <clears throat> Many Christians fled Jerusalem at this time, as I mentioned, because of the persecution. And Saul <clears throat> was going to great lengths to try to destroy the church and uh, to capture and persecute and imprison believers. In this chapter, we're going to see Saul... As he leaves Jerusalem <clears throat> and he heads north, I tell you, this guy, Saul, he was uh, almost unstoppable. I want to show you a distance that we're talking about here. <clears throat> well, you don't even see it yet up here, but... They're there on the map. There we go. That's probably better. I don't know if you can see the bottom. Down at the bottom here, we have Jerusalem. All the way through the mountains, across the Jordan River, through the mountains and the valleys of the other side, all the way up. He's heading up towards Damascus. It's 150 miles. And he's doing it on foot. And he is so intent on destroying the church. And the people, the Christians who left Jerusalem, and they scattered through this area here, but he knows that there's a pocket of them up here. And he will do whatever it takes to destroy the church. And so he'll travel by foot 150 miles to bring the Christians back in chains to Jerusalem. That's the kind of motivation he had uh, to destroy the church. And uh, he had letters in his hands and he was going to, to bring about the destruction of the church. Now, as he nears Damascus, up at the top there, he is intent on destroying the church and um, one of the things that is very interesting as you read this section in the book of Acts is that when the church is persecuted, so is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the, the Bible tells us that he is the head of the church. And when you affect the body, that's the believers, you affect the head. And Jesus stops Saul in his tracks right before he gets to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And you go, wait a minute. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But in reality, that's the closeness that Jesus Christ has with his church. That any time one of his are persecuted or suffers, he suffers and is persecuted as well. And so he stops him in his tracks and, he's, and, and, and Saul is blinded by the light and he falls to the ground and he says, who are you, Lord? And right there on the road to Damascus, Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul or Saul, the, the, uh, the Christian. He thought it was his mission in life to douse the flames of the early church. And God had other plans for him. Little did he know at that moment that he would become one of the great stalwarts, one of the apostles um, of the church, and one who would, would uh, give his life for the gospel. Now, you can well imagine that Saul's reputation preceded him. And uh, as he went forward, people would, would be fearful because he was having a great impact in the church. And so when the Christians heard that Saul was now a believer, that he was one of them, that he was a brother, they're going, right. This is the same Saul that we knew back in Jerusalem? I don't think so. He had that kind of reputation. But he was brought back to uh, Damascus, and he actually preached to them that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you go down to verse um, chapter 9 and verse 22... It says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, that is, he is the Messiah. Now, after, <clears throat> after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in the large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem... And I'm going to stop there for just a second. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not, but in a blink of an eye, three years passed by. Okay? In those verses, three years passed by. Now, it doesn't say that there. We have to get that from elsewhere in the Scripture. And so in Galatians chapter 1, this is what we read. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. But when it pleased God, Paul is speaking to the uh, Galatian believers. He said, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In other words, I didn't go down to Jerusalem right away. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. So in that few verse section there we actually have a three-year period where saul leaves damascus goes out to the desert of arabia where god has some schooling for for uh saul he has to teach him he has to train him and so he has his own private little tutoring lessons for three years out in the desert god often does that with people he often gives them the backside of a desert uh, a dry time or a quiet time or a time away sometimes it's through sickness i know that some um, how many of you have ever read the, uh, the book? Um, uh, it's slipped my mind now. Just a minute. Um, the Treasury of David. 
uh, it's a, a book that is written of all the Psalms of the uh, of the Bible, and it's um, it's it's actually a, a classic of about the Psalms written by Spurgeon. He wrote it when he was sick. God set him aside for a period of time, and he was sick in bed. And during that period of time, he wrote this huge volume uh, referencing all the uh, different Psalms, and it's a, it's a wonderful commentary on the Psalms. And God often does that in a person's life. Moses had the backside of a desert experience for 40 years, taking care of sheep. And sometimes God does that to us too before calling us to greater service. And that's what he did with, um, with Saul or Paul. So <clears throat> he finally uh, comes back, and the disciples are still questioning, you know, whether, whether uh, Saul is really for real or not. I mean, come on. So his reputation remained for that three-year period. He comes back to Jerusalem. They're questioning him at that time. There's a man named Barnabas who is mentioned. Well, we've already mentioned him once. Remember Barnabas? He was the guy that in the early church had, um, had a house, had land, and he sold it, and he gave the proceeds to the church. He said, here, you use it for the distribution of the, um, as you see fit. And the Lord took him out of there, and he began to use him to encourage believers over and over again. Well, here he appears again, and <clears throat> it's really through the, the comforting work of Barnabas. He just basically puts his arm around Saul and says, look, let me introduce you to the believers. And so he does that. He brings them and he, he gives them uh, credibility, if you will. And then um, during the time that he was in, uh, during the time that uh, Saul was in Jerusalem, there were threats against his life. Well, I'll tell you something. He, the, the Jews probably thought of him as a turncoat. Here he was, one of their star boys. He was the one who was going to, to, to destroy the church. He was their number one man. And he became a believer. He became one of them. And so now he's back in Jerusalem and they're ready to kill him. And so we see in Saul's life that uh, there are a couple things that take place. Let's take a look at where he goes from here. So he returns from Arabia to Damascus, stays there for a little bit, goes down to Jerusalem for only 15 days, during which time there's persecution that arises. The disciples say to him, look, you're not safe here. You need to get out of here. So he goes up to Caesarea, and Caesarea, from there he takes a, a boat up to the city of Tarsus. That's where he's from originally. So he basically goes back to his um, home area. And finally, the church has a time of peace. Their foe has become their friend. Their foe has become a brother uh, in the Lord. Now, if you go down to Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, we have mathematics once again. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Okay, so we have the multiplication again. All right, chapter 9, verse 32. We have three stories here. Uh, and this goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 48. So in this section, let me uh, put it up for you. Is that it? No. Hmm. 
The focus of attention now shifts to Peter. And we're going to look at Peter for a few minutes here. And uh, the first thing we see is that he, he comes to a, a man named uh, Aeneas. And Peter uh, approaches him. Here's a man who has been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden for eight years. And he heals him. He rises, rises up from the bed and he's able to walk and he's able to move about properly. As a result of this miracle, many people in the area of Lydda and Sharon uh, turn to the Lord. So let's take a look at Peter's ministry here now. Okay, so he goes from Jerusalem over to to Lydda. That's where he stopped at this point. And as he stops here, he heals this man. As a result of the healing, the news spread throughout the town. Many people came to know the Lord. Now, over in Joppa, Joppa is uh, over here. uh, No, is that Tel Aviv? Right next. Yafor? Okay, so it's near Tel Aviv. Okay. All right, so there's. it's a coastal city, Joppa. And there's a, there's a lady who lives there. Now, now, Peter is still in Lydda at this point. But there's a lady who lives in uh, Joppa. And she's a, a woman that is just full of good works and charitable deeds. And she helps out all kinds of people. And she dies. And so they, they um, take her body. And they, they, they get it ready for burial, basically. And, and lay her down on a bed. And they're troubled by this because she was such an important person to them. And such a gracious woman. And they heard, the people that were in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda. And so they, they basically go down to, to Lydda. Now, by the way, that's about 20 miles, roughly. Now, she's dead. This is not exactly uh, 9-11, picking up the phone and dialing 911 and having the, uh, the team come and try to revive her. It take, they're walking, and it's 20 miles. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't walk 20 miles very fast. So she's really dead. And by the time they get there and they explain it to Peter, he has to walk back. So now she's deader than dead. And by the time he gets there, 40 miles have gone by. That's a long distance to walk. I think the scripture is just trying to tell us, look, this is a miracle. Okay? This wasn't the, uh, uh, the ambulance that came and, uh, you know, pumped her heart back up and uh, she, she was revived. She was really, really dead. No paramedic could have helped her even if they had come. And so he came into the room. He put people out of the room and he knelt down by her side and he prayed. And the Lord answered his prayer and restored her life. And she was raised from the dead. Well, I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who claim that to do miracles today. I don't believe most of them. But this was genuinely a miracle. And the Bible couches it in such terms to make it clear to us that it truly was a miracle. A miracle uh, to, to verify or to establish, as, as it were, the authenticity of the message that Peter was preaching here. As a result, the news spread throughout town. I guess so. How often does that happen? And many people came and trusted the Lord as their Savior. Now, while he was in Joppa, Another event took place. Boy, it's, it's nice to be in the center of God's will, don't you, would you say? Can you imagine that? Leaving Jerusalem, 
having an impact raising a guy up who had been bedridden for eight years, going over here, raising someone from the dead, and you're still walking in the center of God's will, and while you're in Joppa, some other enormous event takes place. It's one of the greatest events that has taken place in church history. And uh, here's what happens. There's a Gentile centurion. He's part of the uh, Italian division, and he's up here in Caesarea. And he's a good man. He's helped out uh, many charitable deeds and, and alms, and he prays to the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord, but he prays to the Lord anyway. He's seeking the Lord. And while he's there, an angel of the Lord speaks to him. Wow. And says to him, to go down to Joppa, and there you will find a man named Peter. You have him come back up here. He's got a message to tell you. Now, Peter's a Jew, in case you forgot. And a centurion isn't. He's a Gentile. And the Jews didn't have any comings and goings with the, the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the off-scouring of the earth. They were the, the uh, cast-offs, if you will. They were unclean. And here Peter is down in Joppa, and this, this centurion is going to send a couple of his men down to get Peter to come back up to him and, uh, and to be with him. And so he goes down, and he, they're on their way down to uh, Joppa where Peter is staying. Well, while Peter is not knowing that these men are coming, he's fasting and he's praying. And as he's fasting and praying, he sees a vision. And during this time of this vision, he sees unclean animals coming down in a, in a uh, 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 like a blanket or a cloth. And the Lord says to him, eat. He says, I can't eat. That's unclean. Those are unclean. That's unclean food that you're presenting before me. And the Lord was teaching Peter a lesson in this uh, illustration here. We'll get into it when we get into this part of the, the passage in more depth. But what he was really saying is, look, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And basically he's saying this, you're, you, you're, this is your attitude toward the Gentiles. And you're saying that they're unclean and that I can have nothing to do with them. And I'm saying to you that I want, to, I want them saved. I want to save the Gentiles. Now, Peter didn't get it yet. He still wasn't clear on, the, on what he was saying. And so the men come and they say, look, we've had a vision uh, God has spoken to our master, as it were, and he wants you to come up and, and talk to him. And he goes. And when he comes up there, Peter begins to explain um, the gospel. And in the middle of preaching the gospel, it's a wonderful story. I, I just love it. Peter just drops a couple of mentions of the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And he just mentions the gospel, kind of in passing, as it were, and as many as believe in him can be saved. And right there in the middle of the sermon, just by saying, saying the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. And as he's speaking in the middle of the sermon, and he still has more to say, and all these people get saved. It's wonderful. <laughs> the Lord, Peter said, well, I'm not finished. He didn't say this really, but it's almost like he's saying, I'm not finished yet. And the Lord's saying, yes, you are. You preached the gospel. They got saved. And so they were saved. And... Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them just as they had to the Jews. Well, that news doesn't sound like much to you, right? It's the reason you're here this morning. Because the gospel went out to the Gentiles, and the gospel is still going out to the Gentiles today because God is interested in saving the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. And that's where the gospel went, and it's still going today. Well, that news also, you know, things traveled fast. In, in those days, they didn't have telephones or cell phones or whatever, but news traveled all the way back to Jerusalem before Peter came back that the Gentiles were trusting the Lord. <gasps> you 
you know, the shock. Now, they didn't have the vision down there. It was Peter who had that vision. So Peter's now back on his way to Jerusalem. And as he comes to Jerusalem, they're mad at him for going to the Gentiles. Why would you do such a thing? And he said, well, let me explain it to you. And he explains the whole story to them. And they rejoice in their heart that God has also seen fit to have the gospel go forward to the Gentiles. Then they said this. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Praise God. We are here because of that uh, today. All right, let's move right on to... Now that was... Um, I, I jumped ahead in my outline here, but you'll catch up. Here it is. All right, let me just give you the rest of it so you've got it. So we've already gone through this uh, section here, Peter approving the Gentiles. And then we come to chapter 11, verse 19. Where the... um, where we see Barnabas and uh, Saul. All right, very, very quickly, we're just going to end with... Um, that comforter, Barnabas, he's at it again. He, uh, many of the Christians had scattered into all of this region up in here, and uh, many of the churches were, were growing. And so... The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to encourage the believers up there. Now, the focus of the attention in the rest of the book of Acts really centers from this one church in Antioch. Most of the activity uh, is going to be, most of the the uh, gospel going out to the world actually centers from that one spot up there. And so while he was there, it says a great many people were added to the Lord. He had a time of great rejoicing. It was a time of, of uh, people getting saved. He then left Antioch and went over to where Saul was in Tarsus. And when he came to Tarsus, he, he said to Saul, look, Saul, let's come back to Antioch. And they began to work together in a ministry. And uh, as they remained there for about a year, the two of them taught in the church. Now, most of this time, if you look at the book of Acts, you're seeing the uh, the account being stated as, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Later, there'll be a transition and Paul will come to prominence. But at this point in time, he's really learning and and growing uh, with uh, Barnabas here. Barnabas is really kind of taking the lead. By the way, how many of you call yourselves Christians this morning? Okay, you call yourself by that name. That name was first coined right here in the book of Acts at this point. The, The people or the church at Antioch uh, were first called Christians there. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, Herod rises up and uh, persecutes the church. Uh, he kills the Lord's brother, James. And so we know that the book of James was written prior to this time. And so it's really one of the earliest books of the New Testament. He also arrested Peter and imprisoned him. And then we have the account of Peter's miraculous escape from prison with the aid of angels sent from God. We see Herod rising up in his pride and and ultimately his death. And then Barnabas and Saul team up together to take the gospel uh, out on their first missionary journey. And they take with them a man named John Mark. And that's the beginning of um, 
the gospel going out into all the world. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at how the gospel went out into uh, the rest of the world, how the Lord prevented the gospel from going into certain areas at first, and how he chose to allow the gospel to first go to Asia Minor and over to Europe and ultimately to us. The gospel still must go out to the ends of the world. There are still people who don't know the gospel, who have not heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's doing that today through missionaries who go to foreign lands. But it's interesting to me that the Lord is also doing it by bringing people right into our, at our doorstep. And the Lord has done that right here in Fremont, in Union City. And as I look around this community here, it is, it is a United Nations. As we look around us and we see people from every country, every land, all around us. And the gospel still must go out to all of the nations. And if the Lord doesn't have us go overseas, I think he's bringing people to our doorstep that we might preach to them, present the gospel to them right here in Fremont, right here in Union City, right here in this Bay Area. It's interesting that the nations of the world are taking up residence here. It's wonderful for the gospel's sake. Pray that the Lord might send forth laborers into his harvest field. In John chapter 4, Jesus asked this question. He says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Then he said to them in Luke 10, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. When you make a prayer like that, or you pray a prayer like that, remember that you might be praying for yourself. Lord, send me. We're going to dispense with the closing hymn again today, and we'll just uh, close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that the early church did not shrink back from its responsibility of preaching the gospel. We thank you that they took every opportunity to gossip the gospel wherever they went. We thank you, Lord, for the men and women that you raised up to live um, godly lives and to preach the gospel as, as widely as they could. Thank you that the gospel went out. We thank you that the gospel reached us. And Lord, we pray that we would also be just as diligent in our generation to present the gospel to those around us who are perishing. Lord, we pray that you would send forth laborers into the harvest, whether it be overseas or next door. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up people from among ourselves here, men and women who love you and who are willing to preach the gospel, to live before people in such a way that they are attracted to Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you might give us fruit and that you might give, it, give us fruit that remains. Lord, we pray for this particular area around us here, and we ask for the numerous people from so many nations. We pray, Lord, that you would be doing a work in their hearts right now, that they might hear the word of the Lord, and that they might seek out God, and that we might be there right at the right time to preach the gospel to them, to present the truths of Christ to them. We ask you, Lord Jesus, 
that you might make us a fruitful church, that we might not only see numbers added to us, but that we might multiply in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.